Welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio, the nice, warm Morton studio. It's below zero again outside. Uh, I'm Darren Hefty, along with my brother Brian. We're going to talk about soybean inoculants. Why? Because I like thinking about planting season, Brian. It makes me feel just a little bit warmer than it is right now. Plus, I'm seeing a lot of farmers booking seed right now or finishing up with that. We're hearing a lot of talk in the seed industry. Uh, they're starting to see where they're long, where they're short, those kinds of things. And everybody's just getting ready for planting. And one of the things that provides a pretty nice return on investment over the years, the data looks really strong, is soybean inoculant. But it's not that 20-bushel yield gain. And I think that's where it kind of gets maybe a little bit of a uh, forgotten image here in the industry that, well, I don't know, it's going to gain me. One to five bushels, no big deal. But for the cost, the return on investment is fantastic. Right. It is a big deal. Here's one other thing you may never have heard of before. How much nitrogen is left after you inoculate your soybeans? So when Darren and I were down in Brazil about 15 years ago, we were talking to farmers there who were raising, some of them even, beans twice per year. Now, a lot of them had stopped doing that, but even when they were doing that, raising beans twice per year and certainly raising them at least once per year, they were still using inoculant. And I said, really? Still inoculant? And they go, yeah, what we're finding is we have a few extra pounds of nitrogen left at the end of the season every time we inoculate versus when we don't. And I go, whoa, I've never heard of that before. That's awesome. So even if you don't get a yield gain, if you can have just a few pounds of extra nitrogen left, let's say you have three. Well, that would pay for your inoculant right there, that you had three more pounds going into your next crop. So anyway, it's just something for you to be thinking about. And Darren's right on the ROI thing. When you spend a dollar or two, you're never going to notice in the yield on the yield monitor, in the grain tank, in the truck, that extra bushel or two, or even a half a bushel. But even at half a bushel, you've got a good return on investment. And if you want to thrive in any business, you got to find things that pay off. So I don't want to invest in things that don't make me money, but just because something only makes me a small amount of money doesn't mean that you shouldn't invest in it. So we're going to talk today about soybean inoculants, when to use them, when not to. Also, I would say Darren brought up, you know, it's cold and everything else. I realize it's the middle of the winter, but I'll almost guarantee you we'll be spraying on our farm two months from now. We'll be planting on our farm less than three months from now. And it seems like a ways off when it's 20 below zero and the wind's blowing hard in the middle of the winter, you get snow on the ground, but it's not that far away. So we just encourage you, start thinking about spring. It'll be here before you know it. All right, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's the mailbag! All right, Brian, got some soil tests here from Don. And I, I knew by the question, I, I knew what to look for just by how he described this, but I'm sure you'll see this pretty quickly too. Uh, he said, all right, guys, this is a field. This, these soil samples uh, actually were from 2021. It's quite sandy, low organic matter and CEC, but... Some of the samples came back for no obvious reason in the field with CEC levels and calcium levels much higher, uh, making our calcium mag ratio way out of whack. Also, pH is higher in these in instances. What is likely causing it? Uh, Don, the answer is free lime. You've got free lime in those spots. That's a, or excess lime, some, some tests will say. 
that that can throw things off a lot. Is there a test that shows that? Uh, what's the calcium percentage in those? Ninety or something? Yeah, ninety-two. Yeah, it's it's free lime. I'm I'm certainly uh, confident in that. Oh, I'm not. Okay. I, I guess without seeing the excess lime test, I'm not confident in that because it only says 2,300, 2,500 parts per million yeah, on calcium. this is low CEC, low organic matter soils. And what are, right. what's the calcium in the other so, other tests? Yeah, 300, 500, <laughs> 700. Yeah. I, yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's excess lime. It doesn't mean it's free calcium. I'm guessing it's excess lime. Now, it here's what be. I'd look for, Don. Are there little white flecks in the soil? Do you notice... Uh, some little, like, basically lime floating around in the soil. If you do, that could absolutely be what's throwing it off. Yeah, it certainly could be. So in these types of soils, this is where we've had Neil Kinsey on the show several times in the past. He's one of the world's leading soils experts, and he'll just tell you they run a cation displacement test just to see, and and it kind of goes back to what Darren's talking about with free lime, what's going on there exactly? Should we be counting all of that calcium in our base saturation or not? So that would be one thing you could do. So you could run a free lime test, you could run a cation displacement test, and then we'd have a little bit better idea for sure what's happening there. All right. Thanks for the question. Yeah, th- those kinds of things come up, and when you do notice something that's off on your tests, it's good to ask some now, questions. Now, here, here, Darren, is the reason why I don't know if it's free lime, because free lime in pretty light soil is going to end up disappearing on us. So how bad can the drainage possibly be if in all the rest of the areas you've got a 5 CEC? That's almost pure sand. Is there? I mean, why would free lime be hanging up in that that's a that's a big question to me. Now, if the, the one of the bigger factors that I'm going to look at in a lot of cases to see is it or isn't it is what's your organic matter percentage there. So, when the organic matter percentage is exactly the same, which it is, it's a half a percent in basically all the ground, then I would say, all right, it doesn't appear to your point, Darren, to be a heavy spot or anything, and maybe it is free lime. And there's more of a problem there than I think there is. But either way, uh, I, I guess what am I doing in those areas? I'm not probably doing a lot different than I would in a lot of the rest of your ground because it's still fairly light. I'm going to continue spoon feeding a lot of the nutrients because we know things can be quite leachable in sandy ground. All right. Well, thanks for the question. And of course, if you have an agronomic question, you can always send it in our email address, radio at agphd.com. Or you can just give us a call during the show. Our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD as well. We're going to be talking about soybean inoculants today. We welcome your calls and questions uh, about this discussion if you want to add anything to it. Otherwise, we'll get started right after this. My mom's got a new case IH tractor and it can do it all. Bail hay all day. See in the dark with its powerful LED lights. Hook up all the implements. Shift like a race car, steer with ease. And it can also cool my juice box. Yeah, her case IH tractor can do everything she needs it to. Looking for a tractor that can do it all? Check out caseih.com. 
Planting preparation starts as soon as harvest ends. So do successful at-plant strategies. Put time on your side with at-plant inputs, insights, and innovations that help you make the most of next season's planting pass. You're already thinking about seed, inputs, and crop protection when you plan your season. Include them all in your planter to give yourself an at-plant advantage that pays off at harvest. Always read and follow all label directions. How can Naturals products help you raise bigger and better crops? Hi, I'm Darren Hefty. Biologicals, or naturals as we call them, are impacting every facet of agriculture today, and that will only grow in the future. That's why we're devoting a full day to our Ag PhD Naturals workshop, Wednesday, February 7th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. Our research team has spent years testing hundreds of naturals products, and we want to share with you what we've learned. For more about this free event, go to agphd.com. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at HeadsUpST.com. back you're listening to ag phd radio we're broadcasting from the morton studio today talking about soybean inoculants certainly part of the conversation as you're putting together your soybean plan for this coming season if you've got any questions for us about soybean inoculants or anything else we would love to help you our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD got troy bauer on with us right now he works with basf and and lives down in iowa how you doing troy Great. How are you doing today? We're doing well. I, I'm thinking about planting, Troy. I'm not thinking about uh, what the temperature is outside very much. I'm, I'm trying to concentrate on uh, April and May and all the good things going on there, one of them being soybean inoculant. Uh, how are you doing? Doing great. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking about uh, uh, sunnier weather as well. I can't wait for the planting season. All right, so soybean inoculant is one of those things that's been around for a long time, but there's been so much change in this industry. And you think about how far science has come over the last 30 years, just in terms of measuring which bacteria are in there and which ones are going to provide the biggest gain for us. And then all the other things that we're putting with those rhizobia bacteria anymore to improve production. It's been pretty exciting. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. At BASF, we have a product called... uh, Vault IP Plus, and it's actually a uh, combination product of three different biologicals. Uh, we've got a dual strain biofungicide that comes in there, and it works really well for suppressing uh, Fusarium and Rhizoctonia, and it grows right along with your root system and helps provide protection against those uh, diseases. You still need your base uh, seedling uh, fungicide treatment, but uh, this is something that'll live and grow with the root system. And then along with that, we have uh, a unique strain of rhizobia that comes along with that, that we've specifically selected to uh, increase your nitrogen fixation. Uh, you, that applies at a really low use rate of about 1.1 fluid ounces per hundred weight, and uh, we've seen some great results with that. 
You mentioned uh, the rhizobia strain specifically chosen to increase nitrogen fixation. And I, I talk to farmers all the time and they say, well, of course, that's what all inoculants do. But one thing that I was just kind of hinting at that uh, over the years, they found some of the inoculants that were on the market uh, didn't necessarily have the best nitrogen fixers. Some of them were great at, at fixing other things and uh, others were just rhizobia bacteria. It's kind of like saying, well, I've got a basketball player here or I could have Michael Jordan. It's it's a big difference. And uh, like, like you're talking about nitrogen fixation there, uh, I think that's one big key here in inoculant. Let's focus on that first. Uh, talk to us about the rhizobia and, and what it takes to make them successful. Yeah, so there's a lot of rhizobia out there and uh, a lot of the rhizobia strains that we have in the soil currently uh, that overwinter have been selected kind of overwinter in the soil. And so they may not be the best in terms of nitrogen fixation. Uh, they're the best at survival in the soil. And so uh, at BASF, we've screened a number of uh, rhizobia strains, and we've selected one that uh, fixes the most nitrogen. And we've seen really good results with that, uh, uh, providing two and a half to three bushels uh, on top of uh, uh, what you uh, would be doing already. So, uh, again, it's really important to have a, a highly efficient strain of rhizobia out there. You also mentioned the dual-strain biofungicide, and this is one of the things that I know our dad talked to us about, too, when we were young. Yep, we put inoculant out. It's going to have an impact, but uh, it's not going to hang around in large quantities for a long time because there's so many other things competing against it. And uh, you're talking about knocking out some fusarium, some... Uh, Rhizoctonia, some of the tough guys that are out there in the soil, if you can knock them out and then bring more of the good guys in, like your rhizobia strain, uh, it's it's a good combination. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And we've seen great results with the, the Vault IP Plus that we have in the marketplace. Vault's one of the most trusted rhizobia strains on the market. And uh, with that dual-strain biofungicide, uh, just helping to really protect those roots and allow the rhizobia to do uh, their thing out there and fix nitrogen and in increase your yield potential. So really important, that's for sure. Yeah, and the last thing that, that uh, you mentioned just real quickly, for some it may be one of the most important things, it's a low use rate. <laughs> and, you know, there's only so much room on the seed, and we've got a lot of the things we're doing with uh, with fungicides, inoculant, or with fungicides, insecticides, uh, other naturals that growers are using, those types of things, having a low use rate certainly makes a difference, too. We're talking about Vault IP Plus with Troy Bauer from BASF. Troy, thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on today. You bet. Thanks so much. You have a great day. All right, Brian. Uh, that was one thing cool that, that Troy was talking about, too, that there's really three different bugs in there that are all working together. And I think that's one of the things too, as we see more naturals entering the market uh, and, and different rhizobia strains used for inoculants, they've got to all play together because you don't want those biofungicides to knock out your rhizobia or something like that. Yeah, it's true. There are getting to be more natural products or biologicals in the marketplace. And you just want to make sure that whatever company you're working with is testing each of those things. So we find out, all right, what is harmful to the other thing? What's not? Um, and keep in mind too, with rhizobia, it's bacteria. It is not fungus. So when you think about fungicide, is a fungicide going to kill bacteria? That's very unlikely. Is 
a bactericide going to kill a bacteria? Well, yeah, then you got a lot better chance. But I mean, there are a lot of things that can damage those bacteria, whether it's chlorine that might be in your water because you mixed something else with it. Maybe it's just your water is hard. I mean, there are a lot of things that could be problematic there. Yeah, lots of things to think about. Uh, get another soils question that came in. Do you want to jump into that? Yeah, go ahead. All right. Uh, this one came in from Cade. And he said, all right, guys, uh, I know you've had a lot of a lot of fertility questions here, but uh, looking at some variable rate fertilization and I'm considering building fertility. Here's what my averages are, uh, if you want to jot this down. So my pH is right around 7.1 on average. My organic matter, 4.1. But my phosphorus at 23, my potassium at 145 are just not good enough. Uh, right now my calcium is 67%, but my mag is almost 30%, and I've only got 2% base saturation K. Uh, boron is low, zinc is low. Uh, and manganese is low as well. So what's the question? Well, he said this is going to be uh, in our family, so we, we consider it forever ground. Just wondering what you think about trying to build uh, Bray P1 levels to 50 and base saturation up to 6. Is that a good investment for the next 6 to 10 years as I can afford it? Okay, so that was one of my questions on the phosphorus test. That's a Bray P1 test? Must be. Okay. So building that up to 50, well, yeah, I mean, in one year, though, keep in mind, you're going to suck that right back down to almost nothing. So that's really not much of a build. If you said build to 100 or 150 even, I'd say, yep, probably not a bad idea. Uh, and so, so specifically, yes, build to 50, no question about it. Building to 6% base saturation K is going to be a stretch for you. I, I mean, you're going to invest a lot of dollars. Would it be a good investment? Of course it would. Because here's the way you got to look at potassium. In a heavy soil like that, it's not going anywhere. It's not going to leach away on you. So what I'm saying is if over the next five years you need, uh, let's say, crop removal, call it, well, uh, for easy math, let's just say it's 500 pounds. Okay, let's say I need 500 pounds of actual K. Just as an example, with whatever crop I'm raising. Okay, if you put the 500 out now, or you put the 500 out over the next five years, either way, you're spending the same money. It's just, are you going to put it out now, or are you not? So where I'm always going with this, when we talk about building P and K, you can do the same thing our dad did. He built P and K, and then right before he retired, he mined it out. <laughs> I don't know why he didn't want to leave it for us, but he didn't. You can do the same thing if you want to. So... Is building P and K good? Yes. And just run some trials on this. Leave some untreated areas, and then you can see what you had for yield difference. But I'm going to guess that it's going to pay off in yield. And the other way to look at it here is in terms of delaying your tax bill, the more you invest in fertilizer, then the less tax you're going to pay in the short term. So you can keep pushing that off and in effect, it's a way to give money to the next generation without having any tax any negative tax consequences, no estate tax or anything else. Uh, so anyway, just something for you to think about, talk to your accountant about, talk to your fertilizer dealer about. But yeah, we're, we're big on building P&K. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you look close enough, you can see the hidden potential within your fields. 
That's why an agroliquid nutrition plan starts with the crop and identifies the precise combination of primary nutrients while focusing on the support of secondary and micronutrients. So every nutrient is working in harmony for your crop to reach its full potential, maximizing growth while offering lower use rates. Apply less, expect more, precisely. Find an agroliquid dealer at agroliquid.com. This season, get medieval on Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia fungicide from Valent USA. Here to shield your sugar beets from the treachery of Rhizoctonia, Excalia delivers excellent staying power, keeping your sugar beets from being conquered. Stay one step ahead of Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia. Ask your retailer or visit valent.com slash Excalia to learn more. Always read and follow legal instructions. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. How can you make more profit from your soybeans this year? I'm Darren Hefty. We'll answer that question at our free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop Thursday, February 8th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. We'll dive deep into your best options for control of yield-robbing pests, trade options including Extend Flex and Enlist, Fertility, and much more. If you want to make raising beans more lucrative and more fun, come to the free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. Learn more at agphd.com. Improve germination in your fields with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our unique spike design seals your seed within a firm vein of soil, providing maximum seed-to-soil contact and maximum germination. Order a set for your planter at farmshopmfg.com. At Commodity Classic, you'll connect with farmers from around the world as we explore new frontiers in agriculture. Join us in Houston February 28th through March 2nd, 2024. Houston, we have no problem. Discover more at commodityclassic.com. Are you ready for better efficiency, more productivity, higher yields? Then you're ready for John Deere Precision Technology, which starts with three core pieces. First, a G5 display gives fast views of your work and a window to future technology. A Starfire receiver gives you sub-inch repeatable accuracy without an RTK base station. And a JD-Link modem gives you a live view of your entire operation. Get precise and talk with your John Deere dealer or visit johndeere.com backslash you're listening to ag phd radio thanks for joining us today we're talking about soybean inoculants and taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD got trent irby on with us right now with mississippi state how you doing trent how you doing fine how are you Pretty good, pretty good. Thinking about soybean planting today and talking a little about soybean inoculants, it's not quite as simple as it used to be where it was just straight rhizobia bacteria in these products. There are so many combinations. We were talking with Troy Bauer from BASF about Vault IP+. Plus. It also has uh, a couple of strains of biofungicides in there, but certainly there's a lot of other things getting mixed with uh, rhizobia bacteria now and lots of products on the market. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely one of those things. I think that uh, 
at least in our part of the world, we, we still have some growers doing just straight rhizobia. And then we, we also, you know, trying to wrap our heads around some of these other new products that, that are on the market today in terms of placing them and, and, and how to incorporate them. I know there are a lot of products that say they're seed inoculants, and in soybeans, when I hear inoculant, I really think about rhizobia bacteria. Uh, what does inoculant really mean? Doesn't that just mean you're going to put it on the seed? Yeah, that, that's. I guess that's uh, the technical definition of it. I, I'm kind of like you, though. Whenever I hear it, that's the main thing that comes to my mind is the basic inoculant that we're so used to. You know, one of the one of the challenges with soybean inoculant is a lot of growers want to just treat everything up and then go to the field and get it planted out over maybe four weeks time. But when we've got living bacteria like rhizobia, we've always had the best gains on our farm with our trial work when we've treated it right at the end of the field and then planted it. Do you believe in, in all the extenders? Do you think some of these labels that are... Uh, Oh, 180 days, or even if it's 90 days, is that legit, or, or are we better off just treating up and planting that day? I mean, I, I think that, that it probably some of that stuff is probably legit, but at the end of the day, I, I guess I side when you when you have those issues out there, somebody calls you when you have a failure, and that's one of the first things you ask is, is when was it treated, right? And I think that, that from my perspective, I would err as close to putting in the seed in the ground as possible to, to do the treatment, particularly, you know, I, I guess depending on the storage method, but, but in our part of the world, these warehouses can get pretty warm that time of year, and you have that increased temperature where, where things are stored, and you would expect that lifespan to be, you know, to decrease rapidly. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, and well, you look at the, the heat that you get in Mississippi, I can only imagine throwing inoculant on the dash of your pickup. Uh, by the end of the day, I'm sure that's not a good situation for any, any living microbe to be in. Uh, you know, the other thing that we run into though is floods and droughts and uh, lots of different extreme weather conditions out there that can certainly hurt microbial survival, even in the soil. Yeah, and I guess for us, the the more common situation would probably be flood with with the Mississippi River, uh, in our Delta region of our state, and, and creek bottoms and things of that nature. But I think whenever we encounter that, we're typically going to err on the side of caution. If we go in any kind of extended prolonged flood period, we we would re-inoculate with the basic product and try to get that bacteria back in the soil or just, you know, treat it as an insurance type situation where have it treated just in case. Yeah. The good news is soybean inoculant is one of the cheaper crop inputs that we've got. So it doesn't take a whole lot of yield increase to make it pay. And, and you're right. And in, in some of these situations like flooding, uh, pretty good, pretty good advice to put it out there for high yielding soybeans. For sure. Well, Trent, thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on. I wish I was in Mississippi right now when it's below zero in South Dakota, but it's nice talking to you over the phone, uh, even if I can't be there in person. There you go. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you. Uh, I got Kip Colors on right now. Kip was pretty famous for making this comment. If you aren't even willing to spend the money on inoculate, I don't know if I can help you much more on soybeans. Kip, do you still feel the same way? Oh, absolutely. That's the cheapest thing you can do. I mean, was it was it cost to knock like beans three or four bucks? Yeah, yeah, just a few bucks. I mean, just it's crazy. Well, it's crazy. That's the cheapest thing you can do. All right, so you're you're 
pretty famous for raising well over 100 bushel soybeans. And, and a lot of farmers listening say, well, maybe if I had 100 bushel beans, I'd need it. But you look at 50, 60 bushel beans, once you get past that, the demand for nitrogen is higher than what you can get just out of an inoculant. It's 3 or $4. It's just a no-brainer. I mean, it's just like, I don't even know why you'd even, I, I just can't fathom planting without it. You know, especially if you're doing any type of seed treatment, I mean, it's going to cost nothing running through the treater. I mean, you're already paying the paying the treating bill by, uh, you know, if you're running insecticide and fungicide on seed, which I think is an absolute must too. But, but if you're trying to save two or three dollars on inoculant, I mean, it, 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 I can't help you. <laughs> no, I agree with you. Well, I know, I know, you get into a number of different. Uh crop rotations and, and so forth down there. When we look at soybeans, they are a pretty high user of nitrogen. So oftentimes we're putting them on after a crop like corn or wheat that hopefully the corn or wheat crop took all the nitrogen up that was already out there. And the other downside with those crops is they've left a high carbon residue behind. So it's tough for soybeans to, to produce everything on the on their own. Do you think nitrogen is what's holding a lot of guys back from reaching the next level, or do you think it's other things first before nitrogen? I'd say it'd be a lot of things before before the nitrogen piece. And, and you got to be careful on what, what form of nitrogen you use. You want to use ammonia, not the urea type. Because uh, the ammonia goes more towards reproductive, and the urea goes more towards vegetative growth. So, I mean, it's you know, I'd say there's a lot of tools in the toolbox that need to be grabbing before they worry about putting nitrogen on their beans. Yeah, there there are quite a few things to to make it work, and you know that's one of the things, Skip. When we we were talking with you went back when you set the world record on soybeans, it it was just tremendous production on ground that you first started off just putting soybeans out there as a cover crop, so you could spray some Roundup, control some weeds before you went back to your to your next high dollar crop. But the soybeans turned out to be a pretty high dollar crop too. Did that change everything on your farm? Did it mean necessarily you're going to have to put a bunch of acres into soybeans now, or were you already doing a few acres of soybeans to begin with you know we were doing beans but the main reason we was doing soybeans is just strictly for weed control and uh uh gosh you know we started raising good yearly soybeans like man we need to really take care of these things and you know before you know it you're five six seven thousand acres of them and uh you know so yeah we try we try to raise uh raise every acre of soybean i mean uh, you know especially our double crop behind weeds I mean, if we can make 60 bushel double crop soybeans, that's better than raising 100 bushel wheat. So, uh, uh, and it's cheaper to raise 60 bushel double crop beans than it is to raise 100 bushel wheat. Yeah. yeah you can just do some little, you can just do some tiny little things. And, uh, you know, if Mother Nature cooperates at all, you know, it's pretty easy to make 60 bushels. Yeah, that's one thing that I've noticed. A lot of the double production acres don't get quite the care that that the full season beans get, and and I just wonder if that isn't what's hurting our double crop yields more than anything that we just aren't putting enough effort into it. That's true, and, and I, I ran uh, years ago. We split a field half with uh, with headline fungicide, another half without, and. You absolutely wouldn't believe me if I told you what the yield difference was because, I mean, we split the field in two. Actually, we sprayed it with an airplane. We sprayed it diagonally, and uh, it was it was like 14 bushels acre on a, on a fungicide application. But, you know, on the double crop deal, we're not planting them until the 20th of June until the 1st of July. And, 
you know, man, you're just putting them out there in all elements, and it's hot, and it's dry, and they're going through a lot of stress, and, and the fungicide piece was just huge on on that. And, uh, you know, so we started taking care of our double crop beans like we would a single crop bean. And and, uh, and honestly, we don't want to plant a soybean down here either. For me, I want to plant either in March or we're going to wait till the second half of June. Yeah, it's interesting as you get into the different stresses as you travel around. And, of course, Kip's got a lot of experience with South American production, too. We could talk all day about that. But reducing the stress on beans starts with planting. Inoculant is a pretty cheap input. Uh, and uh, speaking again with Kip Cullers here, it's something that, that he always recommends. Kip, thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on. I appreciate it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. From machine storage buildings and farm shops to dependable buildings to house your livestock, regardless of building size or use, Morton has a building for every budget. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit MortonBuildings.com. Control the toughest weeds with overlapping residuals. Lock in the longest lasting control for your soybean fields. A pre-emergence application of an authority brand herbicide plus a post-application of Anthem Max herbicide establishes the overlapping residual control key to safeguarding your soybean seasons. This pairing is a heavy-duty economical strategy against Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, Kosha, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or lockin.ag.fmc.com today. Always read and follow all label directions. Insects have reigned since the dawn of time. Adapted to their surroundings. Experience the harshest climates and toughest challenges until now. With two modes of action, Ridgeback Insecticide delivers one devastating outcome for soybean aphids. Extinction from your fields. They may have lived through it all, but they won't survive this. End soybean aphids reign at ridgeback.corteva.us. How can Naturals products help you raise bigger and better crops? Hi, I'm Darren Hefty. Biologicals, or naturals as we call them, are impacting every facet of agriculture today, and that will only grow in the future. That's why we're devoting a full day to our Ag PhD Naturals workshop, Wednesday, February 7th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. Our research team has spent years testing hundreds of Naturals products, and we want to share with you what we've learned. For more about this free event, go to agphd.com. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Do you want to optimize the amount of plant nutrition provided by the microbes in your soil? Source it. Want to replace 25 pounds of nitrogen and phosphorus per acre? Source it. Looking for a more cost-effective way to unlock your crop's potential and increase ROI? Source it. Easy to handle, apply, and store. To make your fertilizer plan more efficient, source it. Learn more at sound.ag. 
listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Broadcasting from the Morton studio, talking about soybean inoculants and taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD or by email radio at agphd.com. Uh, I had a question that came in from Chris, and he said, Okay, guys, I've heard you talk about tillers on corn. I've always heard that if you have tillers on your corn plant, your population is too low. Is that what's going on here, or is it something different? Well, let's put it this way. If you raise the population, will you have fewer tillers? Sure. But just because you raise your population, does that mean your yield's going to go up? No. In fact, you're going to be more prone to lodging, more prone to green snap, and it's very possible that your yield could go down by raising your population. So our point is simply this. Certain varieties have a lot more tillers than others. Don't worry about it. Some people... I mean, literally lose their minds when they see all these tillers and, oh, it's a disaster. No, it's not. We we do a lot of comparisons. I mean, like lots, like thousands of well, comparisons, so, so varieties the, to variety. It doesn't matter. And so do the corn breeders. And yep. they're picking based on yield. And if your hybrid right. has a lot of tillers to it, uh, it's not hurting the yield. Here's where I think it actually helps. So as you go into areas that are more drought prone, I love tillers. Tillers are kind of an indication that there's good fertility. So you may say, well, that means I could have put more plants out there. Maybe. But we want to take that fertility in when we've got moisture in the soil. When it dries out later in the summer, it's tough to get nutrients in. Well, if you already have those nutrients up in these tillers, the corn plant can always cannibalize those tillers and rob them to feed the main ear, which is exactly what a corn plant does. You'll oftentimes see corn plants robbing from the lower parts of the leaves and stem, trying to feed that uh, ear once that's developing. Well, it'll steal from the tillers first. So it's kind of a nice thing. And tillers, actually, if... You've got tons of fertility out there and great growing conditions. Tillers can produce ears too. So uh, I don't have any problem having tillers on corn plants. In fact, I kind of like them. Yep, and I really don't care. All I care about is yield. All right, uh, thanks for the question. Next one comes from Brittany. She said, okay, guys, my garden is next to a field, and I've got stinging nettle in my garden. What can I do now to help prevent stinging nettle from becoming a problem in the summer? Well, that's a challenge, uh, depending on where you're at, Brittany. Now, if you were where we live uh, and you've got a few feet of Wait, snow on the ground. do we know where, where she is? I do not know oh, where Brittany's at. That would help us a lot. But if you had a few feet of snow out there, there's really nothing you can do. No. Uh, you could potentially scoop the snow away from that spot and let the frost go in super deep. And maybe since this was a perennial type weed, maybe you would have a better chance of winter kill. But I don't think you necessarily want to continue scooping snow off that ground all the time. What do you mean? That sounds like lots of fun, Darren. Maybe maybe you do. Otherwise, I guess when you add it in, it's next to a field. I'm just wondering if you're just concerned. I don't want to hurt anything out in that field. uh, Or if you're saying, well, this is coming out of the field. If it's in the field and it's creeping into your area, they're going to need to control it in the field too. Otherwise, it's going to continue coming back in. Okay. There is a product that has no soil activity and it has tremendous ability to kill stinging nettle, it's called Roundup, and it's still great. Keep the water rate low, keep the use rate at the maximum labeled rate, and you should do an excellent job on stinging nettle without drifting anywhere else, volatilizing anywhere else, and leaving any soil residual. So if you want something that's got soil residual, then you're going to have potential problems 
going into whatever crop it is or whatever plant it is that you're trying to raise in your garden. Because, for example, let's say you wanted to use dicamba or 2,4-D. Well, they'll stick around the soil for a while, for a few weeks. 2,4-D won't last quite as long as dicamba, but they'll, they'll both last for potentially a few weeks. So you can't use products like that in the spring and then hope, oh, I'm going to go plant three days from now. Yeah, it's not going to work. A month later, sure. But a month later, now you get a bunch more weeds again. So anyway, I, I guess Roundup would be my answer. That'd and be my worst case, too. yep, and worst case scenario, if it's a garden, it's a small area, you literally just take a little hand sprayer and go around and spray it. But as I say that, let's keep in mind that Roundup, as far as I know, is no longer labeled for home use. So commercial use, I think it's fine. I know it's fine, but home use not. So you just have to check the label, see if for your situation you can use it. If you can, that's the product of choice for me. Yeah, and a high rate because that'll get down into the root system, which is pretty extensive on stinging nettle. The other thing that you can do is you could tarp that area. Just put a tarp over the area where the weeds are on the outside edge. Give them no sunlight, no water. And you may reduce them, but they do have roots that are running yes. underneath the ground. So they may yep. start coming up outside the tarp. But uh, that's another thing that I've seen folks do, especially on raised gardens. It works pretty effectively. All right. Had a comment that came in from Ryan. And I think this is great. Uh, Ryan said, we have found that fields where we fertilized with 10 pounds of 28% manganese for five years had higher manganese in the plant when we tissue tested versus new fields that have not received the treatment. Our treated fields are still low on the soil test with Malik 3 testing, but we are seem to be getting we do seem to be getting more into the plant. Now on the untreated fields that were low on tissue tests, we tried foliar feeding chelated manganese but we didn't see a yield boost with the foliar feed. We're still in the beginning stages of fixing these fields. We have a long ways to go, especially with potassium, but we think that soil-applied manganese is one lesson that we've learned that is more cost-effective and a good way to build. Soil-applied everything is usually a pretty good way to go in heavy ground that's non-irrigated. If it's irrigated in light soil, then going foliar, or put it another way, through the pivot, can often be effective and quick. So... Yeah, we're in agreement with you on what you're talking about here. And it's like we say all the time, okay, well, it's just like the potassium thing. We were talking about that earlier in the show. For heavy ground and and the farmer soil tests, and I'm chuckling about this simply because I've been in the same spot where you look at it and you go, oh, no, I'm going to have to spend a whole bunch of money. i got to put on probably six, 800, maybe 1,000 pounds of potash to, in one shot, fix my problem. Or... I just work in a build program over a number of years. That's kind of the same thing you're dealing with here. So what we've found in our experience is you can gain. You won't gain the full amount by doing it this way in the slow build program, but you're going to gain, and you're going to gain pretty good. So if that fits into your budget, that's the way it works for you, yeah, we, we definitely encourage you to do that. Manganese is a nutrient that we talk about pretty often, but unlike zinc and copper, we can't fix some of the big manganese issues inexpensively. So a lot of times we can go out with some zinc sulfate, copper sulfate, it's a few dollars, and you fixed your problem for the next 20 years. With manganese, oh my goodness, we've spent a hundred plus dollars an acre and still not fixed it in all cases. So um, it's it's expensive. It, I'd say it's the most expensive micronutrient to fix, at least on our farm. 
Yep, it sure can be. Well, it's a great observation that you made, and I, I just have to give you kudos there, Ryan, for doing the testing on your farm and, and keeping the data. That's that's a good lesson to learn. All right, had this comment come in from Mark, and we were talking about residue management, and Mark said, I'm pretty sure the decomposition of stalks in the field depletes the level of nitrogen in the soil. Mark, I... I think when we break down stalks, that's important, and it releases the nutrients that are in the stalk. It does take nitrogen and microbial activity to break those stalks down. So in the short term, uh, you're right that the nitrogen in the soil is going to get used in part to help break down the high carbon residue in the stalks. But long term, we're going to release a lot of fertility out of there, yeah. and the long term is not that long away. Once those stalks are breaking down, there's nutrients coming available right away. Yep. Long term, it comes back. Short term, it's tied up. We agree. All right. Thanks for the comment. Uh, Brian, I got some soil tests here and on the back. So the first two are, are comprehensive soil tests and the back ones are tests for cobalt and nickel. And this is kind of interesting. If you're looking at some of these micronutrients, uh, molybdenum is molybdenum and chloride are actually standard on this test that, that Evan has run. Uh, but he's got some cobalt and nickel that weren't on there, so he ran those separately. So I'll, I'll just launch the question here, and you can think about it over the over the break. Uh, so he's got a couple of questions just on overall fertility, but then he wants to get into molybdenum. He said, our molybdenum levels are low at 0.1 parts per million, and we're addressing by foliar feeding at herbicide and fungicide. Now the tissue tests are starting to show up as satisfactory but I would like to ask you about cobalt and nickel. This is going to be some great questions here from Evan. And if you've got questions, our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. We'll be right back. Morton Buildings has served the American farmer for more than 120 years. From manufacturing our own building components to constructing your building, Morton takes pride in being the industry leader in post-frame construction by providing a quality building and exceptional customer service. A Morton is built to last for generations. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. Win the war against weeds in your soybean fields with fierce herbicides from Valent USA. With three different formulations and multiple modes of action, you're sure to find the right fierce product to protect your operation from tough weeds like Palmer Amaranth and Water Hemp. Give your soybeans a strong, clean start with up to eight weeks of residual control with the powerful pre-emergence protection of Fierce Herbicide. Ask your local retailer or visit valent.com fierce to find the right fierce formulation for you. Always read and follow label instructions. The hard-working, independent spirit of rural America can often be isolating. It's not often discussed, but mental health issues are real. Now's the time to lead by example, talk openly, and show that a strong mind is just as important as a strong body. FMC is proud to be working toward ending the misconceptions around mental health. Through awareness, guidance, and action, together we can uproot the stigma. How can you make more profit from your soybeans this year? I'm Darren Hefty. We'll answer that question at our free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop Thursday, February 8th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. We'll dive deep into your best options for control of yield robbing pests, trade options including Extend Flex and Enlist, fertility, and much more. If you want to make raising beans more lucrative and more fun, 
come to the free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. Learn more at agphd.com. Because the challenges you face are getting bigger every year, BASF is committed to helping with more than boots on the ground. We're committed to boots in the mud, boots on the steps of your truck, your tractor, your combine, the linoleum tiles of your coffee shop, the concrete of your co-op, the gravel in your shed. So we can listen, learn firsthand, help right now to ensure success. BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. Back, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We are in the Ag PhD mailbag time now, taking your calls and questions at 844 44 Ag PhD or by email radio at agphd.com. This question comes in uh, from Saskatchewan. This is Evan, and his first question My molybdenum is low. We're addressing with foliar feeding, it's now showing up as satisfactory. What about cobalt and nickel? Our readings are below detectable limits on many of our soil tests. Uh, do you know of any foliar products, or how are you guys addressing cobalt and nickel? We've done it with, there's a product called Micro 1000 from AgroLiquid that has very low doses of cobalt and nickel, so that's what we're putting on. Keep in mind, these are both heavy metals. You don't want to get excessive amounts. You have to be real careful about what you're doing, so just do a little bit. But let's put it this way. I looked at the soil tests. Honestly, I'm not spending much money on cobalt and nickel. And granted, you could get some micro package like that that costs very little. I mean, you're going to spend $10 an acre, let's call it, and you get 10 different micronutrients. So, well, I shouldn't say all micros, but many different micros and and more for 10 bucks. So something like that, fine. But don't get real carried away spending a bunch of money on cobalt and nickel because you're going to need your money for P and K, your phosphorus and potassium levels, that's where it's at on your fields. Um, so with potassium levels, you got a couple spots okay. that aren't too bad. Okay. Go me, ahead. Let me give oh, you the go rest ahead. of the question then. Okay. I was just on those micros. Yep. Okay, so he said, then I've got tests from a couple different hilltops. Yep. I did 0 to 6 and 6 to 12 inch on those. And they've got very high calcium and CEC. Now, I've put 500 pounds per acre of a high-quality elemental sulfur out there, and it's really starting to show with the micro levels coming up, phosphorus and potassium levels that it's not really affecting. Uh, my highest reading yep. is 55 parts per million of sulfur, so not a whole lot of sulfur left. I last put this on three years ago. So the pH hasn't dropped in these areas with the high calcium and high CEC like it has on the rest of the farm with a much lower rate of elemental. Mm-hmm. Um but the hills are starting to show a lower magnesium percentage, so it appears that that's helping a little bit. And my potassium levels are starting to come up uh, where my base saturations now is over four. Uh, so what would you have done differently? This fall, I banded 300 pounds of KMAG with extra elemental 
uh, sulfur on these hilltops. Would you have done that, or would you do something different? We don't have access to manure to build things, so we've got to apply commercial. Yeah, I mean, I probably just would have gone potash. Your magnesium levels are just fine. You're 11, 12, 13, 18 in these tests that I see here. So you're, you're right there. I, I just don't think I'd spend any money on magnesium. I would keep spending my money on P and K. I just put on MAP or DAP, uh, preferably MAP because you're because of your high pH, and I'd put on a bunch more potash. So just for example, in the one test here, and I, I don't know, it doesn't say here, what's zero to six what's six to twelve so i'm just assuming the top sample is zero to six and the next one is six to twelve but anyway if i assume the top is zero to six the top test you got one that's only 2.3 percent base saturation k and 244 parts per million of k and let's see on an olson bicarbonate test 17 parts per million on a p1 bray test 25 parts per million on phosphorus so it's just, I mean, those aren't horrible levels, but I really honestly think you're going to get more return by just continuing to build your P and K. So that's what I'd be focusing on if it was me. And then just keep working on some of the micronutrients. Your copper looks like it's getting pretty good. Boron's not terrible. Um, I mean, there are, there are a lot of things here that are are really pretty decent. Your zinc levels are, are getting there. You got one that's 2.9, but you got another at 7.5. That's great. So, um, and yeah, the sulfur at 55, that's just about perfect, actually. So, but you've got one field where it's 29 on sulfur. So you can keep pushing the elemental sulfur thing. It's just, the challenge is when you put out 500 pounds, that's a lot of money. It's that's That's my biggest issue that I've got with the elemental sulfur. So what we've typically found is, if we tile where we need it, we and it doesn't look like you have real high like soda. You don't have high sodium or soluble salts or anything else. So I don't know that drainage is a big problem. And obviously, in your region of Canada, you don't typically get lots of rainfall. But in the low low grounds, I would at least consider tiling if you can in your area. But anyway, overall, no, I'd I'd spend the money on P and K if it's me and banding K mag. I'm not saying it's bad. It's not like your magnesium levels are super high, but they definitely are not low. So I don't know about putting magnesium out there if that's going to help you at all. But obviously you can run some trials and just see and let us know. But I think if you compared potash versus KMAG, the potash would give you a greater ROI. Right. Thanks for the questions. Um, got this one from John out in Maryland. He said, all right, guys, uh, deer can hammer cornfields uh, towards the end of the season. I'm wondering if we aerial apply to cover crop over standing corn, could we get the deer to eat the cover crop a little bit more and leave the corn alone? Uh, are certain cover crops <laughs> more attractive than corn grain? Uh, my state pays for cover crops and drone application is getting financially feasible for low poundage applications like brassicas and radishes uh, and many of our our fields suffer from deer damage in the fall hey you know john here's one thing that's interesting so uh, we've done a, a number of different cover crops over the years we do see deer eating radishes we do see deer liking a lot of these things but some deer prefer the corn to that so i some. think it's gonna be i think 
I, I think deer like corn better than almost anything else in my experience, but I could be wrong. <laughs> well, you look at a lot of the food plots, and we get a lot of food plot questions from folks, and people do talk about how deer really well, yeah, do you're like giving, some of these covers. Right. You're giving well, the deer a nice balanced diet. They're probably going to stay in your field. Okay. Well, if, <laughs> maybe so. Yeah, I don't know. It's You're just going to have to experiment with that, John, on a small scale before you do a bunch. But I get it. If the state's going to pay for the cover crops going out there, uh, you can certainly utilize their dollars, well, your well, tax dollars that are getting rerouted into a program like that and just see what you learn over the years. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not optimistic on fewer or less corn damage, but I am optimistic that, hey, if you need a cover crop and you can get that out there and it works for you, great. Let's just look at it on that side. Just So let us know if you find out, hey, the the deer aren't eating as much of my corn now that I have this other cover crop out there. I doubt that's going to happen, but I could be wrong. All right. Uh, more soil tests here. This comes in from Kerry. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, got these soil sample results here this past December. Uh, samples were taken after roughly 162 pounds of anhydrous per acre were applied. We're going to plant corn on this this year and then rotate back to soybeans in 2025 or down in, in southeastern Nebraska. We're all dry land. Uh, and we're in 20-inch rows for both crops. Our yield goal is 240 bushel corn, 70 bushel soybeans, and I'm going to variable rate some ag lime out there. I know I've got some pH levels that need to improve. We're doing minimum till, just vertical tilling corn stalks. Just kind of curious what you think about uh, the samples here. Well, I think lots of variability. It's like just about every test when, okay, they have 42 different samples here for a, let's see, 135-acre field. And she brought up the... You got pHs all the way from 5.1 to 7.9. I see 8. Yeah, 8. Yes. So, yeah, it's a great idea to do variable rate out there. Absolutely. Because you need to do it on lime. And I would take a look at it on some of your other nutrients, too, because you've got some potassium areas that look really good. In fact too good on certain nutrients. You got one spot that's 15% base saturation K. Please, please do not put any more potassium there. You don't need it. It's only what, hurting so you at that high So what's happening with the sodium? Because there are some acres there that the sodium looks pretty high on too. Is that Does I that show up on base saturation or just on parts per million? Uh, well, I guess that's a drainage issue. So yeah, you've got as high as 4% base saturation sodium in some spots. Here's the other thing. When you round to and a single integer, that's great with some nutrients, but not great when you start talking about base saturation sodium. Because is it 4? Is it 3.6? Is it 4.4? Well, 4.4 and 3.6 are a lot different, but they both round to 4. Anyway, what what was the question again? What what else would, would yeah. I do? Yes. I'd build my phosphorus up to 100 if it was me because it's a Malik 3 test. So that's like a, a P2 or a strong Bray test, and you've got some areas that are down in the 30s. Um, that is not enough phosphorus, and especially if you're only going to fertilize this year and then hope that you've got enough carryover fertilizer to go into soybeans. Um, you absolutely need more phosphorus in areas. You need more potassium in areas, but you got some areas that are really good. So variable rate is the way to go. Yeah, variable rate is awfully nice when you've got... Uh, oh, and zinc levels. levels are low, too. You want to get your zinc roughly 10 to 1 phosphorus to zinc. Hey, thanks for the question, Kerry, and thanks to you for listening. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.